Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. This week's show, Eric Fawcett and I talk uh, all things Gator basketball with listener questions during the COVID pause. We will also do a mailbag where we answer each other's questions. Uh, among the topics we discuss are our our <laughs> words. Uh, we're going to talk about whether we'd rather have John Bunu back or the 2014 team beat Connecticut in the Final Four. We'll talk about who the third best team in college basketball is. Uh, Disney World a little bit. Going to get into that, you know. Um, some hot takes about Disney and some other things. So hope you guys enjoyed the show. Please remember to leave us a rating, um, a heart on Spotify. Give us a subscription. Um, you know, leave a review at Apple Podcasts. All that stuff helps. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Florida Basketball. I am Neil Black and Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, um, you know, I don't know what you do, and I was wondering what we would have to do with another COVID pause, but uh, I guess technically the third pause for Florida, the second that's officially COVID-related, and uh, no basketball this week, so... I guess on the one hand, Florida loses uh, a couple opportunities for quad one wins. On the other hand, Florida loses the opportunity for a couple of road losses. Yeah, I mean, you see the way that they played against against South Carolina. Oh man, I'd be I'd be a little scared to play LSU a second time. I'd be a little scared to play Tennessee a second time. So while you can look at it as like, oh, there's some resume opportunities, which they certainly would have been. Um, man, also a chance at some tough losses and and. Uh, definitely a shame that Texas A&M wasn't able to play Saturday. I think that's the exact team you want to come back and play to get uh, get your feet back under you. So uh, it, it was almost looking like, okay, Florida avoided some tough games. Uh, that's you know maybe a good thing. They come back against Texas A&M. Oh, that's about as good of an opponent as you could ask for. Things can kind of get rolling again. Um, yeah, couldn't couldn't be so lucky. But you know, Neil, before the before the season, we were kind of doing our. Um, our, our preseason superlatives and our over-unders and our predictions. Uh, and one of the ones was, was you know, talking about how many games will Florida end up playing. And I, I forget exactly what our answers were, but I, I had the under, whatever it was. And I, and I think I had a, a significantly less than you. And, and part of it was, this is kind of what I expected, was that um, Florida was going to have a shutdown because it just seemed wild looking at the entire sports world that was going to happen. But more than that, it's, it's your, I kind of knew that they were going to run into a situation like this where, where they're ready to play and their, their opponent wouldn't be. Did I think that they were going to dovetail off each other? Uh, no, that definitely makes it a little bit rougher. Yeah, no, you definitely won that, uh, <laughs> that contest that we, we had there among the, the various things that we were talking about. I thought, uh, you know, you you had it significantly under. I guess I got overconfident, thinking it would be easiest to. I guess I got. I thought it was going to be. Hey, it's easier to to test the. You know, college teams because they're smaller, and uh, that was not true. As it turned out, it doesn't matter if you can test them if people keep coming up positive. One thing I will say, Eric, is that. Um, it, it really does not appear to be a coincidence. And, I, you know, I'm almost late mentioning this on our college basketball podcast, but I think a couple other hosts like Jeff Goodman have talked about the states with the biggest COVID problems are the ones that are getting most impacted by shutdowns. It's no different in the SEC. 
where Texas A&M and Florida, the two states with the highest COVID rates in the SEC, have now had programs missing games. Well, the the one thing that I have had a big problem with and is totally being totally bearing out is true. And, and I, I'm so glad that Mike White wasn't one of these coaches or, you know, maybe he was behind closed doors, but he wasn't certainly wasn't one who said it outwardly. But there was a bunch of coaches and, and college basketball media that said, oh, the safest thing for these players is to be playing college basketball. It's safer for them to be in the practice gym and, and traveling, playing games. Um, it's it's safer for them doing that and getting tested all the time, um, you know, versus not, you know, when they're talking about should we play basketball or not. There was a lot of people arguing, in my opinion, in bad faith, saying that it was safer for players to be playing college basketball than not. Um, well, we're seeing that that's clearly not the case because we don't know the exact number for Florida of how many players that have had COVID, but the, our best guests slash people who are in the know have suggested it's over 50%. And there are many teams in the country in the SEC that have had over 50% of their players get COVID. It looks like Florida's coaching staff has a significant amount of, you know, people that have been affected sadly. So, uh, so anyways, I just, I, I, I did not like the argument that some people, when they were trying to make sure we had a college basketball season and, and I'm, I'm, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm glad they're playing. There's no question. But for people who are arguing this was going to be safer for players, that's just obvious. I, I never thought that that was going to be true. And it's just clearly not true because players are getting are, are getting it. They're testing positive at a much higher rate than whatever you want to say, whether it's the national population or the uh, uh, or even do this, the college student population, the university. I, I'm going to guess that the, the student population at the University of Florida is not I'm guessing that 60% of them have not caught COVID yet. That's what we're seeing with sports teams. So, um, so anyways, that's just a little bit of my, like my jab at those people who are arguing that, but um, uh, Hey, it looks like at least Florida's on the, the right side of it now for um, the people that did test. And I, I just, yeah, hope, hope they are staying safe. There's no question. I, I feel for these players that are have to travel around the country or around the Southeastern States and um, interact with a lot of people. I just uh, hope they can stay safe. Yeah, I mean, I hope it. I hope it is. Uh, I hope Florida can navigate this extended shutdown again, too. Um, is the other thing I'll add, and, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on this. I, it, like, um, Florida came out of the the Keontae Johnson shutdown and and played really well for two games, but then looked kind of lost. I chalk a lot of that up to learning how to play without Keontae Johnson, and maybe like once that kind of adrenaline rush was gone, right? The like win for Keontae. Then they were kind of like, wait a minute. <laughs> now we have to play like this the whole season. It wasn't just a, a couple games uh, in succession where they were emotionally charged up to go, which can happen with 18 to 22 year old kids. And also Florida played really well against LSU uh, in the first win, um, you know, in, in what was a really good college basketball game. But, but this, these shutdowns have been, problematic for for some teams that have had these extended shutdowns and this is like we said this is Florida's third pause I mean Michigan came out of a two-week shutdown um you know we've seen I guess it's kind of to be determined how they're going to respond to it Eric but we've seen what extended shutdowns could do to some teams I mean Clemson just hasn't been the same um you know whether you think that's about competition or shutdown it's fair to say the shutdown impacted their basketball in some way. Um, they have not been as good. St. Louis, another team that has not been as good. I mean, they lost to LaSalle. That's, that's not good at all. Uh, South Carolina has gotten uh, 
has never been able to get into a rhythm. And I know both of us think highly of Frank Martin and think reasonably highly of their talents. I think for a Florida team that's already been through a lot of adversity, uh, it's got to be a huge challenge for the Gators. Well, I've shouted out Evan Miyakawa before, who just has an awesome college basketball analytics site. And something that he did that I think is just absolutely incredible uh, was that he looked at every team that has gone off uh, or had COVID pauses and essentially looked at the results after COVID pauses versus what all these predictive metrics would suggest to happen. Um, so he's doing his best to quantify, hey, how badly does a, does a COVID pause hurt teams? And, and what he came to was... Um, a two-week pause is worth essentially 2.5 points of, of the expected value. And for every day that it goes beyond 14 days, uh, the, the outcome comes worse and worse. So, for example, right now, um, so Arkansas is a 77 to 74 favorite by, by Ken Palm, um, a three-point favorite by most of the, most of the predictive analytics. So um, what, what Evan Miyakawa's, uh, what his study would conclude is that uh, instead of – you know, Florida being a three point or, or sorry, Arkansas being a three point favorite, they should be like a 5.5 point favorite. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the Gators are uh, say they end up missing another one or whatever. I mean, right now they're going to be like a one point favorite over Auburn. Well, if they're on a pause up until that point, well, this data would suggest that they should then be favored to lose. So uh, I obviously, you know, like so much of what I do in, in my writing is trying to quantify what isn't easily quantifiable. So I love that kind of stuff. So anyways, Evan Miyakawa did that kind of um, research. And, and again, there was people arguing kind of like, Hey, how much does, how, how much have these pauses really affected teams? And um, his research showed um, quite significantly. So uh, obviously the first time around, it didn't seem to bite the Gators a ton, um, but this time it really could. And that was actually another thing he, he that he did in his research was he looked at teams that had a second pause, and the second pause was always significantly worse than the first one. So, uh, looking at looking at that data, I uh, yeah, definitely definitely have some worries about uh, about what happens to the Gators when they come back. Well, this is for and this is Florida's third, mm. right? This is their third COVID pause. That's true. I, that's I true. They've joined uh, Texas A and M and and only a handful of other schools that have had to do that. So. Um, you know, a big mess. We, speaking of big messes, we left a lot of listener questions in the bag so we could have a really fun show with Graham Hall last time. But I wanted to dive into these. Keep in mind, um, this will be the rare instance where Florida Basketball Hour does not do uh, every single listener question because some of them are right after South Carolina and they're like, they need hello darkness. My old friend played with them. So like, we're just going to skip over the like most somber ones and try to ask ones that are forward thinking about the rest of the basketball season, starting um, with our guy at bull Gator, who has, uh, I think been listening to us since the first season. Shout out to, wow. to shout out to at bull Gator for roughing it through uh, season one of FBH. Um, he says, Lewis has been a no-show more than once this season. What's going on with him? Well, I, I think he's always going to play a little bit of a quiet game at times just because I, I don't think he has um, – I don't think he has like high end offensive talent. And, and again, there's going to be games where he attacks straight line drives and gets some catch and shoot opportunities that he's going to put up whatever 15 or 17 points. Like he had a couple times early in the season, but uh, yeah, I just think when, when his game is, is so limited, it's just, you know, he, if he catches the ball and he doesn't shoot and a defensive player gets a really good closeout against him, well, that that's the end of his, his, 
ability as a threat. And uh, the other thing too, with, with uh, Scotty Lewis, um, obviously on this podcast, we've talked about the fact that he is uh, maybe not as good of a defensive player as, uh, as his reputation would suggest. And uh, I would say in the South Carolina game where he had a lot, and again, tough situation for him coming off, uh, coming off some, some games he could, didn't play. Uh, but uh, he had some tough moments defensively and, and came off the floor. Um, I was looking at some of his defensive analytics, which I actually hadn't really done for the first half of the season for no particular reason. But um, when Florida doesn't play multiple games in a row, it gives me an opportunity to get into some, some deeper stuff. Um, I was uh, I was shocked at how bad Scotty Lewis looks by the defensive metrics. Like I was truly truly in awe of them. Um, so of when uh, when a player is is uh, is the primary defender, um, that those numbers can always be a little bit skewed, uh, just because again, like sometimes someone gets burned. Um, just brutally, uh, a player makes a defensive error. He gets blown by. Uh, another player comes to help, and he contests the shot at the rim. Um, that player who contests the shot at the rim is probably going to get credited as the primary defender. So, with a these stats do need to be taken with a grain of salt. But um, right now, Scotty Lewis is is currently well on track to set the record as um, the highest points per possession allowed as the primary defender in the Mike White era. Era. Um, so. That was something that just shocked me. Was like I, you know, I didn't think he's had. I don't think he's had a very good defensive season. Um, but looking into a few of the defensive numbers, it's like, oh man, that might be. Uh, it might be worse than even I thought. So uh, again, when he's not bringing a lot of defensive value, and he's not bringing a lot of offensive value, I mean, man, there's there's going to be games where there's just better options than him. Yeah, uh, really good answer. Really good answer. You know, I didn't. Know, I haven't done the deep dive into to Scotty analytically that that Eric has done. One thing I do think though, is that Scotty's always kind of a secondary score. So I'm not really subscribing to this idea that somehow Florida shifted offensively and now Scotty isn't uh, as active or involved. I don't think it has anything to do with that uh, quite frankly. And I've seen that suggested in a couple places. He's always going to be a guy that, that is never the guy that you run offense through. And even, even like Keontae, like you can run offense through someone and not necessarily run plays for them. Um, I know that sounds contradictory, but I promise it's not. Uh, and to some extent, like we've seen that with Keontae Johnson, where they would isolate with him because he can handle the ball a little bit and like maybe let him attack downhill late last season. We saw that a few times, Eric, but they're not necessarily running their sets uh, for him even if maybe they run some of their zone offense through him uh, with him going and diving down to the elbow. Lewis is none of those things. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, if someone said how, like if someone were talking, like trying to get me to coach Scotty Lewis and design an offense to, uh, to get the best out of him, um, you know, I'm probably giving him like a, a, a dribble handoff into a ball screen, which is like, you know, that is definitely like doing the, like you need multiple actions to get him going downhill because he's not someone who you can just use a ball screen for. He's not someone that has been particularly effective when the ball gets swung to him. So just like attacking closeout. So again, I just, um, I, I just think he's pretty limited and Florida does not have stuff in their offensive arsenal to, uh, uh, to kind of feature whatever skill he has. And, and I don't, I'm not saying that as a slight, I just think like, Hey, if you're going to be out there with Trey Mann and Colin Castleton and Tyree Appleby, and even Noah Locke, like I'd probably rather run a 
pin down screen set for Noah Locke than than something for Scotty Lewis. So I so yeah, when I I, I just want to be clear when I'm saying that Florida doesn't run anything for Scotty Lewis, I'm not using that as a slight against the coaching staff. I mean, I I, I do the same thing. I I probably wouldn't be running stuff for Scotty Lewis. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified uh, <laughs> my point so so that it didn't seem like I. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't want it to, to sound like a criticism because um, it's not. It's just kind of a fact. Um, your coaches – well, Scott Garfinkel asked what, what is wrong with Scotty Lewis, and I think we, we've kind of answered that question. I don't, I don't know if there is necessarily anything wrong uh, with Scotty, but, I, but it's interesting to hear those defensive analytics, and maybe like that, that's where the question is a little different from what Bullgator asked. Yeah, I kind of swung it that way, and and I, I, I'm probably gonna have to write about it and and do a little bit more of a dive before just like dropping that number of uh, him giving up 1.1 points per possession as a primary defender, which is by far and away the worst. Um, the next is uh, would be Anthony Derugi at 0.9. Very interesting. Florida's two most athletic players are um, giving up the most, um, but there, there's definitely like a grain of salt to that. Like I said, there, there's times where those numbers I think get misassigned. Um, the other thing is the fact of the matter is when Scotty Lewis is on the floor, he's probably taking the other team's best player, which I, I don't know if that's even the strategy I would go with, but that's the fact of the matter is like, it seems like whoever the opposing team's best perimeter score is, they put Scotty Lewis on him and therefore he's kind of set up in a position where it's like, yeah, some of these, you know, Cam Thomas is going to get his Scotty Pippen's going to get his, um, I think that they've gotten a little bit more against Scotty Lewis, who hasn't been a great defender. But um, but again, like it's going to be easier for Tyree Appleby to put up better numbers as the primary defender uh, because he's taking easier matchups than like a Scotty Lewis. But uh, right. but man, yeah. So that's uh, uh, so I I do need to give some context after just saying, wow, there's some numbers that look terrible for Scotty Lewis defensively. But, uh, but yeah, South Carolina, I think, was just uh, one of those games where it's like uh, it was just a perfect example of like, well, like he's not there there's going to be games where he's just not a plus player on either sides of the floor which is um unfortunate to say i mean I, I love the guy and i'm really cheering for him but that's just uh the fact of the matter right now yep agree cam the man fry asks every time it seems like florida turns a corner they drive right off a cliff uh, <laughs> at this point at this point do you guys think it is in their heads trey man even mentioned the lack of ability to handle success verbatim in the post game which is something that you all talked about on your last show. Why is this still happening? Like oh, th- th- this is again, so, so deep into like the psychology of, of college basketball players, which is like certainly not my, uh, I, I know, I know there's tons of people who cover college basketball who love to um, throw out takes on, on, toughness and psychology and where players are at with their heads and, but but to me it's like again like I I I look at South Carolina it's like well um, Florida was completely unprepared for how they played pick and roll defense and didn't know how to attack it um, South Carolina was very prepared to attack Florida's pick and roll defense and uh, therefore they got lost or they they lost and they got beaten and um, and I also think that Florida put out a lineup and that has been poor this season at a very key point to the game and got burned for it so I mean I'm seeing like schematic problems that led to led to execution errors that got them beat. It wasn't like, oh, this team like just looked rattled and played poorly um, or was sloppy. Like, so I don't know that that that's where the whole like handling success thing is, is a little bit tough for me. Cause it's like, 
oh, okay, maybe they didn't handle success well, but I, I, we, we don't totally know exactly how to quantify that. Um, I know how to quantify the fact that South Carolina was dropping ball screens and Florida had no answer for it. So if, if not, if not coming in with a game plan and, and, and how to attack, you know, drop screen and roll coverage is, is getting in your heads and handling success, um, that, then maybe, um, but I don't think that's the case. So, so that's kind of my reaction. I, I don't really, I don't, no, like I know it's something that everyone says, even Mike White says, and even the players say it that it's all about the way they handle success. But, um, yeah, that's just uh, I don't know, it's just not a way my mind really works, to be, to be honest with you. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Trey mentioned that because Mike White kind of pushed back against it. He was like, you know, we really beat that into their heads, he said, but we didn't. There's certain things we didn't do that executed. What he did say that I agree with, Eric, and I'm kind of interested in your take was that he did say there were some focus errors. He said, when you miss five shots at the rim, he said, some of that is focused. Uh, he said, maybe it's fatigue. He said, we looked a little tired, but he, you know, he said some of it's focused. He said, they missed, uh, you know, they missed the front end of four one-on-ones. Uh, you know, some of that's some of those, he said, some of those are focus errors. I agree with that. Like, I do think there are, there are, things you can attribute to somewhat of a lapse in concentration, whether you're feeling good for yourself about yourself or tired. Uh, but like you said, at the end of the day, you know, you got to execute certain things when you go three to 20 down the stretch and you've got a bunch of open looks, you know, sometimes shots don't fall, but when you run a perfect inverted pick and roll and then the pass is bad, you know, that's an execution error. That's not a, so there were executioners and schematic errors, and that's how you lose a game to a team with pros. Yeah, no, that's that, that's fair. I I forgot about uh, that, that amount of missing the front ends of of one on ones. Man, that is uh, that 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 hurts, and uh, that that is interesting. Like I'd I'd maybe put focus, and and hey, maybe it is like you see South Carolina after you see West Virginia. Maybe that's that, that's the the. That's tougher for them to get up focused for. I mean, maybe, maybe, but uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I would say that that is fair to call focus into question when you when you miss those uh, those front ends of one ones. Yeah, it's just human nature to some extent, and I think so. I can deal with like the human element, but I don't want to get too deep into the psyche of like whether success is like in their head. Oh no, we're ranked now. We're gonna lose. It's in our heads, you know. Like I don't know about all that. Um. Your, your coach has entered the portal at Tim Pest US 82, longtime listener, asked, were they just tired uh, from West Virginia? They looked cold and, and never really got uh, into rhythm. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of just answered that. There, there was some of that. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they didn't get into rhythm in the second half offensively. It's been a while since we recorded that show. I think a lot of it was what Eric said. It was kind of a schematic issue with – with how they were, how South Carolina was defending the pick and roll, and Florida didn't really react to it. And Florida ran the same set over and over again, and eventually South Carolina gobbled it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, tough, tough thing to quantify uh, uh, fatigue, but I mean, uh, obviously uh, Trey Mann and Tyree Appleby and Colin Castleton played a ton of minutes against South Carolina, but actually those guys didn't play a ton of minutes against uh, against West Virginia, and obviously that was a tough game, a physical game. Um, an emotionally charged game that's going to be uh, it's going to be one that drains you a bit. But man, I mean, I don't know. They played on Saturday and then they played on Wednesday. Like if fatigue, if it was fatigue, like I kind of think there's a bigger problem there. If you're if you're fatigued for a Wednesday game after a Saturday game, when like you know Trey Mann because of 
foul trouble or whatever only plays 23 minutes and like uh, you know it's not this isn't the NBA where they're playing back to backs they're playing you know three and four nights or even like two and three nights and and your starters are playing 40 minutes every game it's like yeah this was I don't know this was uh like Trey Mann plays 23 minutes on a Saturday and then plays 37 on a on a on a Wednesday like I, I don't know I think these guys should be able to handle that I so so the fatigue one is like maybe I guess I well actually I mean I hadn't heard Mike White say that um, but I mean, I, or like, as you alluded to that, even Mike White suggested that, that maybe they were a little, a little tired, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe they were, maybe, maybe they were on the verge of having COVID positives. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, who, you know, who really knows? Uh, um, CLT Gator, we've got one teed up for you and one teed up for me. So we'll just start with mine. Um, Cause I'm ready to answer it. CLT Gator asked, was uh, Niles Lane hurt? He only played a couple minutes. It seems like they could have used him uh, since he defends on two feet and <laughs> the Carolina drove a lot. They couldn't defend anything. Uh, yeah? Yes. That's my answer. Um, he was Well, my answer is no, he wasn't hurt, and yes, they could have used him. I, I thought I sent some pretty, a pretty interesting thread of videos uh, on Twitter, uh, Eric Fawcett style. I went deep into the archives, and uh, on the on the eve of Jonathan Kuminga's G League debut, I tweeted a bunch of stuff from the Florida Basketball Hour account of Niles Lane uh, defending Kuminga. I, I still there's some clips on Synergy of him on Cade Cunningham, uh, and one on uh, Jalen Green, and so like I had like basically the top three picks in the draft uh, were like I told you Rizzo Catholic played people. And, um, <laughs> and like, you know, he, other than like one of those sets with Kaminga where Kaminga does this like nice little head fake and Lane kind of bites for it and then comes back and fouls, uh, all these, you know, sets were pretty good because he's a really good fundamental defender. Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine, Eric. I think it's mostly about offense at this point and just they're, committed to to not being in these situations where they're they feel as a staff they're four on five offensively i i think that's got to be it and yeah there there's definitely like hesitancy from from niles lane when he gets the basketball offensively um when he does shoot the ball it like seems almost like labored like he really needs to strip that jump shot down to the studs and redo <laughs> it and again that's something that doesn't happen in february so uh but but he, but even then, I mean, it's it is pretty curious. I mean, he played some big minutes against Tennessee and has been just kind of a ship in the night since. So uh, I, I don't know if that was something that that just maybe like happens as as Florida runs through their rotations, just uh, just kind of feeling it out. In the the maybe it's like the game where he said where Mike White's like, "Hey, um, did we get Samson intensive out there?" I, I'm not sure. Maybe that's the same case with, <laughs> with Lyon. If you with Nasla, I just said. Yeah. With, uh, with yeah. not saying, um, maybe that's the case with him, but uh, yeah, especially I, I, I mean, it's tough to imagine him taking minutes away from one of Noah Locke or Tyree Appleby or Trey, whatever you want to say, is at the two guard position, um, right now. But uh, but yeah, when you see those those games where where Scotty Lewis is just uh, just not getting the job done as the primary defender on some of these really good perimeter scores, I just yeah, I, I think Lane has has done enough in, in a small sample size to at least uh, at least deserve a look. Well, he's taking it on stride for those wondering if he's getting depressed about not playing. Uh, 
you know, I can tell you he, he's taking it all in stride. He's learning a lot and, and trying to be a good teammate. Sitting next to Keontae Johnson every game, which is a pretty good seat, in my opinion, uh, if you're chewing somebody's ear. So, you know, his, his day will come. I just don't think it's going to happen this season. It looks like Eric's going to edge me out on uh, – on that one too, because Sam does does offer some offense, um, and that's that's what they value. Art Vandaly, our boy Matt Wolf, asks, uh, you know, he's back on the Castleton train, teed up for Eric. Why does Castleton struggle to finish at the rim, especially since he's so dominant at times? That's a good question, because uh, he does have a really good like touch, and we kind of see that. Uh, with some of those like hook shots from like range, like he's, it's not like little baby hooks where he's like underneath the hoop and he just kind of lays it in there. He's, he's shown some really nice touch with some like distant, distant hook shots. And uh, the thing with him I see is, uh, is he doesn't have great balance and he's also not like particularly strong when he like, when he goes up, he kind of like fades away from defenders, especially for someone as tall as him. I just love to see him like jump straight up and do a little bit more of a balanced hook shot. Whereas instead I see him even with smaller defenders on him, um, just kind of fading away and, um, and, and leaning away to try to make sure he gets a shot off, even though it's like, no, you're going to get your shot off. Like you're, you have a, you're six eleven with a seven foot three wingspan and uh, you're, there's not many players that are going to block that shot. So, so yeah, there's there. I would just love to see him go straight up a little bit. Um, would like to see him. Uh, uh, w- yeah. I would like to see him take away from like fading away. Uh, the other thing I just, I'd love to see him keep two hands on the ball for a little bit longer. He kind of like, keeps one hand on the ball as he goes up. And, and sometimes again, when you have one, you know, imagine this, you've got one hand on the, on the ball, you're fading away and and you're trying to find the hoop at the same time. It's just, it's, it's a lot of moving parts for, for something to go wrong. So I'd love to see him keep two hands on the ball for longer, um, go straight up, initiate some of that contact and uh, yeah, use that length. But um, it, it's interesting. Like overall his, his numbers finishing around the hoop are actually still like really good. He's just had some of those like loud misses that really stick in your mind. Like um, he's an above average finisher. Um, he's in the 79th percentile nationally. He's hits, uh, he's 62% finishing around the rim, which is really, which is really good. Um, so I'm not saying that he doesn't, you know, there's definitely some times where it's like, man, he, he misses some bunnies. And, and I think that those, for those reasons I laid out, but you know, still on the whole, I'd say he's like a, he's still a solid finisher. Good stuff. Good stuff. Our uh, next question comes from uh, William Norris, who asked, when a team plays drop coverage, is it difficult for coaches and players to make adjustments on the fly? It seems like Florida tried the same thing over and over again, regardless of the ball handler. The result did not change. Very observant, William. It's a great question. And uh, the thing for a team like Florida, I'm going to guess, but they've wanted to play dribble drive, uh, they've wanted to play stuff that's a little bit more motion. And whenever I hear teams that want to do kind of like motion, read and react, dribble drive, um, yeah, they 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 want to they want that pick and roll uh, to to start things off, and then have a defender suck in so they can hit the open man who can either hit a jump shot or attack a closeout or swing the ball and distort defenses. And and uh, yeah, and you make plays from there. Like that's always been the way that I think that Mike White's teams have wanted to play, and that's. Um, that's the dribble drive offense right there. So again, I think for Florida wanting to run screen and roll, 
they want they, again they want to attract a help defender they want to go hit the open man well the thing is uh, south carolina showed this when you're playing drop coverage the whole idea with drop coverage is that you're not engaging a third or fourth or fifth defender you're only engaging two defenders to guard two offensive players so uh, again when south carolina plays drop coverage florida comes off the screen they're trying to hit open shooters well the three players that are guarding off the ball are not leaving their men. Like they're, they're not going to give up um, a catch and shoot opportunity. They're not going to put themselves in a position where you pass it to their guy and they've got to close out. So I, I do think that it was a little bit tough for Florida to adjust to because uh, they seem to be coming off the screen and roll saying like, Oh, well, we're not going to hit Noah Locke on this flare screen. Oh, we're not going to be able to reverse it to Tyree Appleby to attack a closeout. Um, and then suddenly you, you get kind of, bogged down so uh it, yeah that's a really good question really observant comments and uh i i do think it's tough for florida to adjust yeah it's great stuff um so we tend to ask like really good we get really good listener questions um and i think eric and i it's like one of the favorite our favorite things to do is to answer listener questions but but one thing you know i've been asked to do by and this is by a lot of people in in dms and i know eric uh gets some dms where even like where people like will join us to their group dms and and hit us with questions and they asked us like can you read some comments that you know or some questions that aren't as good uh and i'm a little reluctant to do that unless but what i've decided without really consulting eric is that i will do it when they're really bad and so I'm going to read one that I think is very bad from uh, at the caw two, uh, T H E C A W two, on Twitter, um, and this was his response to our tweet, uh, saying that Florida missed Keontae Johnson's tenacity a little bit down the stretch against South Carolina, and at the caw two tweeted, "I'm so tired of people injecting Keontae into team conversations. I wish him the speediest of recoveries, but this is the same." 10 and 8 in the league, 10 seed in the NCAA tournament team. It's been the last three years. Same, all capitalized, team, exclamation point. Stop using Keontae as an excuse. Florida would be 10 and 5 with him. They're 10 and 5, 10 and, or 10 and 5 without him. They're going to be 10 and 7 in a week. All right. Um, this is not a good take. Uh, you know, it's just not a good take. Florida probably wins a couple of these games that they've lost with Keontae Johnson on their basketball team. I happen to think one of them is the South Carolina game because when they're at a loss for how to attack pick and roll coverages, uh, there's probably some value in having Keontae Johnson on bar reversals, sucking defenders out, uh, and maybe attacking the closeouts that come from, you know, help defenders having to come if there's ball movement. Uh, I also think that Florida – I'm trying to think of Florida's losses – uh, so Kentucky, I think, is a loss no matter what because Kentucky decided they'd play their best game of the season that night, and Florida did not play very well. Um, but when, and I also think Florida would still have lost Alabama, uh, which I think, I think, I think Keontae Johnson would have helped against Alabama, but I think Florida would have lost that game. Uh, so I would say that the other games that Florida lost, they probably win with Keontae Johnson. So I think this is a 13-2 and two team with Keontae Johnson, uh, not a 10-5 and five team. I do not think it is the same team. And I would add, Eric, that this take is, is almost universally disagreed with by national media, not just Florida basketball hour people. 
that uh, Rob Doster, um, Jay Billis, Dan Dockich, uh, those are just three names that I know of off the top of my head that all think Florida is a one, two, or three seed type team uh, with Keontae Johnson the way that the season has played out. And certainly competing with Alabama for the SEC title, which if they were 13-2, and two, they would be. Um, so these are not good takes. Try to avoid these takes. Uh, well, here's here's the thing. Neil, I want you to uh, aggressively interrupt me if you disagree with what I'm about to say, but um, I don't think you're going to. But as a on a whole for Florida season, whether you want to say versus you know top 25 teams versus SEC caliber play, this is my read uh, on Florida on Florida's roster, Florida as a team. Um, the point guard play of Trey Mann and Tyree Appleby has uh, even Quez Glover as the third point guard has been very good. The point guard position to Florida has been very good. Uh, the shooting guard, Noah Locke starting, um, you know, you could say Tyree Appleby on the bench. Um, that has been good. They've gotten good shooting guard play. Um, small forward, Scotty Lewis, um, uh, Noah Locke there, um, uh, depend- when they play three guards, they, they adequate production from the three for, for a really good team. Um, center play, their center play has been astounding between Colin Castleton and Nomar Payne. Their power forward play has been below average. That that has been the, I don't want to say the hole on this team, but when you look at the difference, between, like again, I think that they're getting very good point guard play, uh, really solid wing play, and outstanding center play. They're getting 40 minutes of great center play between Colin Castleton and Omar Payne. Um, they're getting great production there. At power forward, that, that has been the hole for the Gators. Um, I think Anthony Jeruji has been, with all due respect to him, a player that I that I really like. I do think he has been a below average SEC caliber player. Uh, I think Osayo Sifo, while he's had good minutes on a whole, has been a below average SEC caliber player. So this is a team that has gotten very good production from four positions. And the one that has hurt them so far has, or that they've been deficient in is power forward. Um, where would Keontae Johnson have been? Power forward. So you put Keontae Johnson potential you know the best power forward in the sec one of the best in the country you put him in a position where right now florida is getting below average play um yeah i don't think this is the same team with keontae johnson that is a stupid take feel bad that i spent two minutes responding to it i guess you spent less time than i do i did so (laughs) kudos to you uh for spending less time on a terrible take justin fortner not uh uh a frequent uh, purveyor of bad takes ask, uh, did Florida pass on Zed key (laughs) or did he commit to Ohio state over Florida? Uh, He's pretty good. Um, Yeah, man, he's good. We, I think Eric and I were like standing for him a little bit at times on uh, a couple of our recruiting podcasts. I don't think Florida passed on him though. um, To be quite honest. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know if they passed on him. Um, I I do think they had some reservations. Like I don't think they were like all out full court press trying to recruit him. And and, and I mean the thing with Zed Key is he's got a little bit of what I think that they didn't love about PJ Hall, where uh, Zed Key is someone who is like undersized as a five. Um, like he's he's kind of your traditional power forward, like um, bruising power forward who can post up and score down low. And I think that they saw with PJ Hall that they they that didn't really fit what they wanted to do. And I, I think they might have had some hesitation with Zed Key. There was a time where I was talking to Zed Key and and I loved him. I thought he one of the best interviews I've ever I've ever had. Talked to him a few times for Gator Country. He told me all about this like 
old like Buick or something he was fixing up. I'm not a car guy, but Zed Key is. Um, but he was like telling me all about this car he he was fixing up. Like uh, super polite, love his game. Um, so he seemed very he seemed very very keen on going to the Gators until. Um, or, you know, I shouldn't say going to the Gators, he, but he, he definitely seemed very excited about the way that they were hurting him until one day, uh, one day they, they weren't, they, he just didn't seem to be as, as excited. Um, I shouldn't say they weren't, but he, he, he seemed to be, there, there seemed to be a time where it was noticeably, um, he didn't seem to be purveying that they were recruiting him as hard. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I don't know this is fact, but again, he fits a very similar profile, um, kind of skill wise to, to PJ Hall as like a undersized five maybe oversized for in, in modern basketball, at least for how the Gators want to play. So, so anyways, it wouldn't be surprised. I, I, I really don't think they passed on him, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they like weren't going all out for him at the end, if, if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so we had a series of questions from a, a couple of listeners um, who did ask to, to be anonymous. That's fine. Um, you know, no worries about that. Uh, one of them was, I was surprised no one mentioned the idea that South Carolina after West Virginia was a mountain too tall to climb. Both teams really beat you up physically. Um, maybe if you have had a game between, they might have been able to finish out the second one. They had a lead and seemed to run out of gas. Do you view this as possible? I do. I, I, I think that's a reasonable point without getting too into like psychosis and psychology. Uh, it is a difficult task to play West Virginia uh, physically. It's also a difficult task to play um, South Carolina physically. So I don't think, I, you know, I think that you can add that to the various things that contributed to what happened, Eric. Yeah. I don't really have a take. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's, uh, it's, I'm sure it didn't help uh, to playing playing two physical teams like that. That's for sure. Um, Mike White. Next question was Mike White seems to always uh, seems to favor bigs going for the block rather than playing positional defense. This is an interesting question. This means the big is out of position for rebounding, it seems to me, or um, <clears throat> they're late to help. As defensive coaches, do you feel this conflicts with not playing two bigs? If your only big is trying to block everything, then are you bound to give up more offensive rebounds? You know, I love these kinds of questions because it's people trying to learn stuff. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I talked about it on the podcast as one of the first basketball analytics things I, I ever did like many years ago when it was, uh, you know, it was like the, the David Lee quotient, the guy who gets, who doesn't block a lot of shots, but gets a lot of defensive rebounds. And, um, you know, Carlos <laughs> Boozer, a couple of guys from that era that were like really good defensive rebounders, but um, did not have good rim protection numbers. Um, now you're seeing the opposite. And I mean, um, you look at Florida as a, as a rebounding team. So like this year they are 301st in defensive rebounding. Um, la last year they were 150th in defensive rebounding. Um, the year prior, they were 313th in defensive rebounding the year before that they're 256 in the country in defensive rebounding. Like, like, uh, Again, even the team that was really good, the, the Elite Eight team was 193rd in defensive rebounding. So there's no question that like Florida has not been a good defensive rebounding team recently. And uh, I think some of that does have to do with the fact that um, uh, the, the fact that a lot of times like Colin Castleton, Kavarius Hayes, um, I mean, Kerry Blackshear really wasn't getting out there to contest too many shots, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact is, yeah, when you have your, when you have some of your bigs going and, and going to contest shots, um, they're not going to be in defensive rebounding position. Um, I think that's probably gotten Anthony DeRuji in trouble a few times where he just tries to block everything. And especially from him coming over, usually as like the third guy, him just trying to block some shots where he is not a prayer of getting to the ball, even for him with his, 
one billion inch vertical. Uh, he's not going to get to. Um, it's put him out of rebounding position. So uh, yeah, there's definitely something to be said for that. But I don't think that that's like, I, I don't think that that's always necessarily um, like they're they're getting coached to like go pursue everything and just like leave offensive rebounding. Like with this team, I think it's like man, like Florida's just giving up a lot of drives from the perimeter and. Um, it's, Colin Castle has to contest that. And I'd rather Colin Castleton contest a shot, either force a miss or, you know, ideally get his fingertips on it. And then um, the other guys have to adjust to, to hopefully get a rebound. Um, I, I'd rather have that versus a guy does go straight to the rim. I mean, it would be interesting if Colin Castleton maybe just did try to keep two feet on the ground and put his arms straight up and, um, and tried to contest some shots there. He would end up being in slightly better defensive rebounding position but uh yeah i, I don't know it, it's interesting because like relative to this year's team i would have to say like oh i think it's just more a problem of like florida's giving up so many drives and that's why florida's big men are just getting so many blocks but at the same time i mean man like this is a you know i write out the defensive rebounding numbers florida has never been a good defensive rebounding team or hasn't been in these last these last five years so it's like clearly there's there's something there i would say especially when when all these teams going back to john Bunu, then kavaria says um, with the exception of Kerry Blackshear, they've had like shot blocking fives. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's those are great points. The next question was, um, you Neil said on the last podcast the best lineup for UF uh, might be Man Appleby Lewis Payne and Castleton. I like that lineup a lot. I also like maybe even better Man Appleby Deruji Payne and Castleton. Only late in a game when the other team is going to crash the glass. What do you guys think of that? I, I mean, if you were truly in a position to like know you were just going to be competing on the defensive glass, that'd be all right. But uh, you're just not going to find yourself in too many uh, positions like that, other than like if you can get a sub before like a free throw. But that's really not like, yeah, you know, that's not really position. Like again, even if you're in that position, I think Florida's probably saying, "Hey, we probably like our rebounding chances enough with Scotty Lewis at the three, with Omar Payne at the four, and." Um, and Castleton at the five. And and again, if you think you're going to get the rebound, then you probably think you're about to go and have to try to score. And uh, that lineup doesn't sound like a great offensive one to me. So, so I mean, I, it wouldn't be a lineup that I'm particularly intrigued by. Um, I, I can certainly see the, the, the thought process of like, Hey, what would be in, in one dream scenario where you need to get a key defensive rebound? What would be the best lineup? Um, Maybe it would be that, but uh, but yeah, I, I I don't think it would be worth sacrificing uh, the other things that 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 lineup would sacrifice. I also think it's probably Locke and not Appleby if it's purely just about a rebound, just because Locke's like sure. stocky and his ability to just put a body on people. You know, Noah does put together these games where he'll get like four or five rebounds. Usually, those are games where Ford is playing pretty well and, and performing pretty. Too like I don't have to look at this, but I feel like there's a, a reasonable correlation between when Lock rebounds well and when Florida rebounds well. Um, I'll have to look at that. It's kind of an interesting thought that just happened to come out of my mouth as we were talking, Eric. Well, you know, this is a number I can look up. So if you ask another question, I might have uh, some kind of an answer for you by the time. Yeah, you, uh, no, I like it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's that was. A, I, I thought that was an interesting. Um, an interesting series of questions uh, that, that wanted to be asked anonymously. So uh, we will ask the, well, you know what? We'll do the last, I'm trying to figure out where the last question is that I left off on. And yep. Uh, it was a question 
about uh, how would you actually characterize Florida's offense now? Is it sort of a hybrid between Dribble Drive and Princeton? Uh, is it more of a UNC type offense where they ball screen and then go into Dribble Drive? Or is it just a ball screen offense? It's, it's a lot of ball screens. Um, that's how I would mainly characterize it. And then there's definitely a spacing element, especially with two bigs. And I think it's something that Eric touched on uh, much more eloquently than I'm able to, but the, the way that, you know, everybody thinks of four out as being kind of how uh, you space in modern basketball. And yes, that's true, but there's also ways to really space the floor with multiple bigs and Florida has been able to do that uh, effectively. And they come out of their ball screens and then things get spaced that way too. Um, like when the screener peels off, it resets the spacing if the original screen doesn't work, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, these last few games have just been so, so pick and roll heavy. Um, and it's been effective for Florida uh, up until South Carolina. Um, but uh, I, I do think that Florida right now is initiating everything with ball screens. And then out of that, it's it's a little bit of redirect. So I guess that's where you can kind of get into some dribble drive concepts. Um, but I wouldn't call Florida, you know, a, a, a dribble drive team anymore, which is uh, a good in my mind. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just say that they're right now they're they're a pick and roll heavy basketball team, and occasionally they still go into some of the the Princeton chin series stuff um, uh, from time to time. I'll be interested to see if they go to that more. But uh, yeah, to try to classify their offense, I mean, like I said, I forget the exact number for how many ball screens. I know I said it on the podcast for. Um, for how many ball screens they ran uh, against South Carolina, but it was the most that they've ran in the Mike White era, and it was like over 40%. Like that is a, a ton of ball screens, and, and everything kind of flowed from there, especially when like it was like 40-some percent of their their you know shots came from the ball screen, and it was like you know 15% of them came in transition. So it's like that's a whole lot of your shots, a uh, whole lot of shots right there. But, uh, Neil, I just have an incredible number for you, and not to uh, – not to go, I, I was not trying to refute. I actually kind of thought what you were going to say. No, you said it's about fine. Donuts, um, rebounding was uh, uh, was probably right, but this is a this is a crazy stat. Um, this is something that's really cool about lineup data. Not only can you look at teams uh, at, at Florida's net rating, but uh, you're able to look at some pl- st- uh, some individual statistic numbers, such as like, hey, how does Florida rebound when Noah Locke is on the floor versus off the floor? This is the great stuff that lineup data can teach us. So Noah Locke, when he is on the floor, Florida has a minus four net rebounding rate. Um, So that is a minus four net rebounding rate. Um, When he is off the floor, Florida has a plus 11% net rebounding rate. So (laughs) while... So again, like looking at one player, like a true shooting guard for like rebounding numbers, um, you know, that should be again, taken with a grain of salt, but that is, that is a wild swing. And, and the thing too, I will say though, is like, there's been a lot of lineups recently where it's been, you know, Trey Mann, Tyree Appleby and Noah Locke and and Noah Locke has a lot of times been kind of the de facto shooting guard or sorry, small forward. So like maybe he's found himself in some, some tough matchups, but uh, yeah, that's just a crazy number. And I just, I just love lineup data so much that I'm um, glad I can look things up. Like uh, how does Florida rebound with no lock on the floor versus off the floor? That's fantastic. All right. On to the mailbag. Uh, do you want to start or I start? How, how do you want to roll with this? Oh man, I've got so many questions for you, Neil. Definitely more than uh, more than we'd ever get on uh, on one podcast. But I'm definitely taking this from Three Man Weave. Um, I love people know that I love their podcast. And one thing they did is they just asked each other mailbag questions because we love answering questions. And uh, uh, sometimes it's like, hey, I just have random questions that I want to ask Neil. So some of these are like. <laughs> 
pretty stupid, but some of them are, some of them are, you know, maybe good. So I'm going to start with, uh, I'm picking a random one, but, uh, let's go with this one. Neil, what would you rather have? You can, you can go back in the time machine and change one of these situations. Would you rather have a John Igbunu never get hurt? So the Gators get to go play on the rest of that season, um, the postseason with John Igbunu, maybe even get another season out of John Igbunu. Or would you rather get a full rematch with the 2014 Gators against UConn? You can make one of those things happen. Which do you choose? I want um, – I got 30 wins in a row from that 2014 team. It's one of my favorite Florida sports teams ever in any sport, and I still want healthy Johnny Kudu. Oh, wow. I, wow. That's great. I love that. I, as I asked the question, I was like, I think I'm like, oh, is this a stupid question? I think he's going to for sure say the other way. I, I love these said Igbunu. Sorry, please go on. Uh, so I think they hang a sixth final four banner in the Odom. Um, I think that whatever the hide is, is very nascent um, because Obviously, Michael White went to the Final Four in his second year, unlike Billy Donovan, who made it Florida fans wait until year four. Um, I think uh, – I think – I do think Florida loses a rematch, even with John Ibunu, uh to Gonzaga in the Final Four. The question is, of course, would Florida even be playing Gonzaga because of seeding? Um, would Florida have won the SEC – Hard to know. Here's my favorite Mike White team statistic is that in the six games prior to John Igbunu getting hurt, and Eric has heard this from me before on the three years we've done podcasts, but um, in the six games prior to the Igbunu injury, Florida was winning SEC basketball games. Think about what Baylor's doing right now, and then think about this number. Florida won six SEC basketball games, including two verse-ranked opponents by 22.5 points per night. So give me Johnny Budu, and I'll hang a Final Four banner. I'm so glad you answered it that way. I, as, I was asked, as I was asking the question, I'm like, oh, I think he's going to just say the 2014. So maybe this is a bad question, but I'm glad. I'm glad it was. Glad it was not. You answered it great. I'm so glad you answered it that way. No, it's a great question. Look, Shabazz Napier traveled, and Florida won the first game <laughs> up at up at UConn anyway. So like, it's fine. Uh, the Final Four was a weird game and I think Scotty Wilbekin was hurt and that team had brought so much joy that them just getting there was fine and like to be honest there was some level of poetry even if it was sad poetry in like Pat Young Are you there? Yeah, sorry, I've got you back now. You were frozen there for a second. No, no problem. There was some poetry. Uh, I was talking about the poetry of Pat Young laying out for a loose ball, uh, losing in the final four, like replicating the great play he made uh, in Knoxville. You know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's an interesting one. So I'm going to go mailbag with, uh, with my boy Eric Fawcett here and ask you, is it time? So I don't know what your actual – like we don't – I know. I think you like the SEC Big Twelve Challenge because we always have fun with that show. In the three years we've had the pod, 
But would you like it if, say, Super Bowl weekend, college basketball had some sort of invite-only midseason tournament to break up the monotony of conference play? Like, is that something that would interest you? Are you satisfied with the current, like, financial situation that ESPN has going on with all the conference challenges? Like a PK-80, but in January. I love that. I am I am here for any, like, mid-season schedule adjustment changes. Like, like for example, something that I think that's really cool in, like, Conference USA is, like uh, – they they take their four best teams and then they like reseed them at the end of their their regular season and let those top four teams play each other to like boost their resume because they know that like they're probably a one bid league but they want to be more than that so they like want to give them more opportunities uh, so I think that would be I, I think that's super cool and I just think uh, I think there's would be very cool opportunities for like like you said Super Bowl weekend for there to be some kind of uh, some kind of tournament like you said pk80 whatever you want to call it like let's get like a western kentucky and right now i'm sure western kentucky would love to get a high major game and there'd be high major teams that would love to see western kentucky right now or loyola chicago who's looking better than their final four team this season um there's things like that that you just don't know before the season exactly how it's going to shake down and if you can get um get them some marquee games it would make for great television it would be great resume building stuff and i think it would just be great for the sport i i'm team college basketball i i want um the game to continue to grow and i think stuff like that would do it so uh if there's one good thing that's going to come from covid in college basketball i hope it's the fact that teams realize they don't have to be like football and schedule a decade out in advance they can schedule something in a, in a week or a couple of days or something like that so yeah neil i i love that idea i'm all in for for something like that excellent all right okay okay neil um very important one here um i want you to power rank the disney world parks Oh man, I love this. Uh, man, so like, I was supposed to go to Hollywood Studios with like the Star Wars Land, and then COVID happened. <laughs> so, you know, like I hate to do this to Hollywood Studios, but I know because I know they've made a ton of changes. But like the Great Movie Ride is total trash. I'm told it's not even there anymore, but it's trash. no longer there. Okay, That's, so wow, what a hot take! It's, <laughs> it's gone. Um, I haven't been to Star Wars Land. I'm gonna go with that as four. Uh, I go. I'm going Animal Kingdom three. I like roller coasters. I like rapids. I'm not really that into Avatar, but the ride is real pretty. Um, like the only problem with the Animal Kingdom is that you run out of things to do in like five hours. Uh, now that's probably great if you have little kids like me, but if you're just there to like have fun, like you're kind of like, all right, now what? Uh, I'm going Magic Kingdom 2. All right, the classic, can't beat it uh, for the most part. Um, even better now that some of the restaurants have adult beverages. Uh, you know, they made it a little more grown up friendly. And then I don't think you can top Epcot for like if you are into food which I'm into food and you like beer and I like beer. Um, and you know, you've got rides. That's like a thing you can do. It's expanding. They're building Marvel universe. Just going to make it even better. 
Uh, it's going to make it more kid friendly, I think, because the big problem right now I have in Epcot, Eric, is like I'll be driving around Epcot and I'll be like, I want to stop at this food stand. And, you know, like my eight year old will be like, Dad, you just stopped at the food stand in France. And I'll be like, why? Why are you judging me? <laughs> and she'll be like, well, when are we going on rides again? Right. And I'll be like, there's no rides in the world showcase, baby. <laughs> you know, like. That that's maybe the only drawback is that there's only two rides in the world showcase, but I'm power ranking Epcot at one. I, I truly don't know what the like, consensus would be. So I don't know if that's a hot take. I, I feel like that there's some hot takes in there. If people want to tweet at the show, their Disney world power rankings, I would, I would be intrigued because I, I do think that was a very spicy take um, of your ranking. So that was, that was good. I'll send, good a, I'll send, I'll send us, I'll send a tweet out. I'm just letting letting everybody know that we power ranked it on that I power ranked it on the show. So I, I've got to say too. Um, so this is a throwback to Graham Hall in the last episode. So last year when I was uh, when I was in Florida, me and my wife were there. So we were of course there to see Florida basketball games, such as Florida dominating Auburn. Um, we were going to Disney World in between, and uh, so the Star Wars Land or whatever just opened. And we knew that Rise of the Resistance, this new ride, was uh, was a thing. We were excited to go on it. But we had no idea the the system for um, how you have to ch- check in into the virtual queue. And oh, uh, so anyways, yeah. so, so we had no idea. So anyways, we're at the uh, – I think it was the – oh, no, it wasn't the Opera game. I think it was the old Miss game. Uh, whatever, one of them. We're, uh, we uh, Graham Hall comes over to talk to me and my wife, and uh, we're talking about the ride. And he's like, "Yeah, so uh, and you know, make sure to get there early and uh, get on the virtual queue." And then he keeps talking. I'm like, "Oh wait, wait, what was that?" And uh, or actually, my wife was like that, not me. My wife was far more intuitive than me, and uh, we had no idea that you needed to get in that virtual queue. And Graham's like, "Oh yeah, if you don't get in like at like early in the morning and and get in the queue, you're not getting on the ride that day." So you know, we show up like right when it opened get in the virtual queue. And I mean, we didn't get on there, you know, we get in the virtual queue and we weren't on the ride until like eight o'clock that night. So had Graham Hall not told us in advance how the queue system works, we would have not gone on rise of the resistance. And that would have been heartbreaking because uh, the one take I will give is man, rise of the resistance was a a, a transcendent theme park ride experience. It is. And I don't even like star Wars that much, but uh, that ride is like, that was, I was going on. It was the future of theme park rides. So anyways, I'm eternally grateful to Graham Hall for, for making sure that me and my wife could, uh, could get on that ride. So, so thank you, Graham, if you're listening. Yeah. I'm going to have to put an asterisk by where I put Hollywood too, just so that people are aware that like, I haven't been to star Wars land. And like when I, the last time I went to Hollywood studios, great movie ride was the thing. Um, Cause I, I'm, I, I have been told by people, Hey, star Wars land is incredible. And I have been told by people with kids that uh, this mini mouse train thing that they've got, we're a great movie ride. It's fantastic. And that kids love it. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting thought. So, all right. My mailbag questions, you know, I wish I had known. Next time we do mailbag, I'm going to go outside of the game of basketball. I'm not just going to oh. make one up now because it won't be it won't be good enough. But I know you're going to like this one, and I think our listeners will too. You can pick one of three players that Florida heavily recruited and nearly signed to add to this year's Florida team. Of the and here, here are here are the three that I'm going to give you to choose from. All right, Moses Moody. All right, Jalen Suggs. Now keep in mind, 
keep in mind that, you know, Florida's gotten a lot of productivity out of these, out of, you know, the Suggs position. So you got kind of got to, you're going to wonder a little bit about that one, right? Or PJ Hall. Who are you adding to this Florida basketball team? Uh, it's uh, it's got to be Jalen Suggs. Uh, yeah, I, I understand. Like, it's not like that's not the position of need for. Florida, I was afraid I, I made it. I was afraid I made it too easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the thing, of course, is like PJ Hall. Like, I, and again, I, 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 you said add to this year's team, so that was like not really like looking forward. Like, would I rather have potentially three or four years of PJ Hall? Versus one year of Jalen Suggs, uh, maybe. But if we're talking this year, um, even though PJ Hall playing the four would be would be great, um, I think it's Jalen Suggs. And and the thing too is like you know like Florida has gotten really good point guard play. There's there's no question. Um, but uh, I, I think to get the uh, the defense of, of Jalen Suggs, I just think that's what really would would set him apart. And and Tyree Appleby and Trey Mann have both shown that they can be really effective off the ball as well so i mean like man i think you could play those three together and just like oh man it'd be crazy so so give me jalen suggs i i just it's just too much talent neil i know the fit like even like i even think like like moses moody would be a great answer that would be a totally defensible answer out of the three as well but uh yeah just give me the give me the raw talent give me jalen suggs yeah i think moses is probably like i don't think we're gonna get to the arc we're gonna have to do Eric and I will talk about it off air, but we're going to, we're going to come back on an Arkansas preview because we're over an hour and mailbag's too fun. But like, I think when we get into the Arkansas preview, whenever that is, I mean, most of the movie to me is a two-year player, maybe a three-year player, kind of an interesting program fit. I think he's an even better shooter than he shot this year. So it's going to be kind of like, interesting. like just the way that his shot looks, it's a lot better than I thought. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. And, potentially a, a pretty good program fit. But I, I, if, if I had to choose in that answer, it would have been very easily Jalen Suggs. And the only thing I was worried about with this mailback question was, did I make this way too easy? And oh, no. No, there were like three defensible answers. But uh, I think yeah. at some point you just you just got to take the talent. Um, yeah. yeah, but Neil, we, we'll have to do mailbag again. You can dabble outside of the uh, the basketball world. I have plenty of non-basketball questions. This is, We'll have to do this again. I have far <laughs> too many in my iPhone notes. But I will throw one back to, uh, to Florida land here. Um, what would you rather have? Would you rather bring back Midnight Madness when it's safe to do so? Um, would you rather bring back Midnight Madness or flip the camera so that the Rowdies are seen on the broadcast? Which would you rather make happen? Oh, that is such a good one. Man, I don't know how you came up with that one or like what you were doing. Um, but that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's an awesome one. I, I was thinking way too hard about the segment. I'll tell you that much. I really think, I think flip the camera. I think yeah. with the camp, like I like Midnight Madness, but I also think, like I'll be blunt, at a football school, I just don't think it moves the needle that much. Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, I mean, I'm I'm someone who consumes. 99% of the games on television. So like I would be the person like really benefiting from um, the camera yeah. being on the rowdies and, and, and like, I don't know, like you said, I mean, it's a football school. So like, it'd be really cool if the cool parts about basketball were, were showcased. And I mean, that would be having the camera on the rowdies. So that's uh 
Yeah, it's a fair answer, but uh, I've just heard I've heard so much lead. I guess I, the the argument for Midnight Madness would be like that. You hope it is like the glory that it once was, and I, I think part of it too is I was a little bit nostalgic for like I just got like a Facebook memory to like a year ago where um the the Canadian Basketball League. There's a team in Edmonton where I live, and uh, so like two years ago or whenever like whenever it was safe to do so, they had their like pre uh, they had their kind of like Midnight Madness type thing, and it was like. You know, quite fun. It was super fun. They had a media game that even, you know, me, Eric Fawcett was out there grinding and it was a good time. I'm like, man, it would be so cool if they were doing stuff like that with Midnight Madness with this Florida basketball program. So, um, hey, you know what, Neil, I'm glad you uh, had a good answer for that. But, uh, you know, my answer might be, uh, you know, why not both? Why not Midnight Madness and flip the camera? Let's uh, let's dare to dream. I like it. I like that one a lot, actually. All right. So we are going to go trying to decide you know what let's do two more so that means uh yeah you can do two more and i'll do two more um but how about this how about gonzaga and baylor the best two teams all right they're they're awesome um and in fact uh somebody asked me how good are they uh so i went and looked and there are three teams that have uh, adjusted efficiency that are higher than, than both Gonzaga and Baylor in the last 15 years. Those three teams are 2008 Kansas, 2007 Florida, and 2015 Kentucky. That's it. Um, so that's how good those two teams are. Who's the third best team? Oh, so sorry, can you ask the question again? I'm just still like catching up on the <laughs> You're just marveling at how good Gonzaga and Baylor are. Yeah. yeah. Really good. So so sorry, uh, ask- who's the third best team? Um like the, the the thing with those efficiency rankings is is still that's like that's relative to their competition. So like to be honest with you, I don't like I think this Gonzaga and Baylor like Gonzaga and Baylor are awesome this year, but I you know, I think every one of those other teams you mentioned are, are still better. Um, I, and, and I understand again, using that, the Ken Palm efficiency margin to, um, to kind of even be able to rank teams year to year a little bit, but like, you know, if Gonzaga was, if, if Gonzaga was playing any of those other teams, like I, I, I think Gonzaga is, uh, or sorry, I think, I think Kansas 2008 is, is, is beating them. Um, I, I think that might be the best out of them. And it's kind of interesting cause they didn't have any players that, that kind of went on to, uh, to have like great NBA careers or anything like that. But I, I, I do think just the way that their pieces fit and, and the, the fact that that Kansas team was like, the fact that that Kansas team, like, like that was such, that was the time where college basketball, I think was probably at its best with like all these like great players that stayed for multiple seasons. And again, to see like the competition that that Kansas team was so much better than versus like, Hey, like Gonzaga is definitely awesome. But you look at the teams that they've like had to beat to, to, or be better than to get where they are. Um, you know, it's like Michigan who has, you know, like, like, again, like, Franz Wagner is a great player, but he's never going to fully realize his talent before he leaves for the NBA. Um, whereas like, man, those, those teams, like, you know, the Florida team, you mentioned the the Kansas team, 2008, um, they were, they were beating like the best college basketball teams in the country by a large margin. So, so I don't know I, I, if that answers the question. No, by the way, it was 06 Florida, not 07 Florida. Okay. Um, okay. But still, I mean, like, it, a national champion either way. Uh, and, and, you know, still th- those are the only ones 
in the last 15 years with uh, with efficiency margins where Gonzaga's and Baylor's are now. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of cool that we don't really know who the third best team is, to be honest. Like, I guess maybe it's Michigan, but like you said, like, you know, they don't like jump off the page at you or wow you. I think the reality is it could be any number of teams uh, <laughs> from like from like that three to fifteen range, right? Like Alabama has looked like maybe they're the third best team at times, quite honestly. Uh, you know, Iowa, if, if you like offense, uh, you know, uh, they're yeah. You I, could I, fall in love with Luca Garza. Virginia is pretty steady, right? Uh, Florida State has looked that at times, so. Sorry, I still realized I totally misinterpreted your question while I was still uh, still I'm trying to figure out who the who the third <laughs> thought, best team. I thought you meant the third best in like all time when of those teams. No, you mentioned, no, not the, no. So I was like, I was, man, what are we talking? Okay, so I got okay. Now I'll ask you the question it. quickly. You know, um, I, I I do think it's like, man, I, I've got to say, I, I'm going to just deliver the 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 hottest of takes of a team that's lost three of their last four. Um, I honestly think Texas is going to be the, the third best team. I know they're they're out of the, the that mix right now because of losing to Oklahoma State and Baylor and Oklahoma, three teams that are looking really good. Um, I, I I think Texas, with the way that their their backcourt plays, with the way that they with the way that like Kai Jones and Greg Brown and Jericho Sims are in the front court, um, I I truly think that. I truly think that Texas is the third best team in the country. I think they sit at like 15th or something in Ken Palm right now. Um, I think Texas is number three. I like it. I like it. All right, let's do it. Well, you know, I clearly wasn't very focused enough. Um, so sorry about that. Uh, but uh, like I said, this iPhone note, I'm just trying to figure out what questions to ask you, what to say for future ones. But uh, here's one that I think is uh, pretty interesting. Um, who gets a bigger head coaching job, Jordan Mincy or Darius Nichols? So I think it's going to be like, let me ask this. Do you mean initially or like uh, in yeah, their sorry. career? I, I'll, I'll say initially. Um, yeah, I'll say initially. Initially, I think it's going to be Mincy. Initially, I think it's going to be Mincy. I think in their career, like I'm, I'm a little higher on Darius Nichols, uh, like long term. Because I think Darius is a little bit better of a recruiter. Um, and I think maybe Darius that way can – like Darius seems like the kind of guy who could land like a mid-major gig and recruit enough good players to that school or like they'd be really good. And that's how you put yourself in position for like a really elite job. Yeah, no, no wrong answer to that one. I was just – I was definitely interested to see what, uh, what your reaction would be. Those are – yeah, two guys that uh, – yeah, could be could be going somewhere soon. I mean, they've been they've been mentioned in a couple jobs. I, I mean, I see like uh, like South Alabama, Richie Riley right now. Um, they're a team that like they've just gotten like like that's where DeAndre Ballard is. They just got you know Turbo Jones from Auburn. Like half of their team is is high major transfers. I, I feel like I could see either of those, either Jordan Mincy or Darius Nichols, like kind of like doing that and just getting like all these like bounce back high major transfers. Um, so. That that might be that might be I like again I see Richie Riley doing that at South Alabama I could totally see uh, see Jordan Jordan Mincy or Darius Nichols doing doing that right away. Yeah, I mean it's crazy, right? I mean I'm watching uh, right now. I'm watching Casey Alexander just absolutely crush Eastern Kentucky uh, in the background here as Eric and I record this show. <laughs> and what I thought was going to be like this awesome game that I was going to hit rewind on. Uh, and, and, you know, 
where did he start? He started at Stetson, and then he went to Lipscomb, and they made an NCAA tournament. And then he had, like, this impossible job, which Mike White might know something about, and replaced uh, Rick Bird. And um, his record at Belmont is 46-8. and eight. <laughs> Wow. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Who's the guy at Winthrop, too? Another guy that's, like, a star. So, uh, you know, I could – I could see Mincy or Nichols being in that position quickly, as you mentioned. So I'm going to go with mine, and then I'll let you close. You can close the mailbag. This will be my last one. So uh, this one's for the fans out there that stuck around at the end of the pod. Uh, We never do bracketology. So Florida has the following matchups in the up-to-date bracketologies, Eric. Uh, On ESPN, they're a seven seed. The two seed is Houston, and they're playing North Carolina in the first round. All right, hold on. All right, if you need to take notes, take notes. On the <laughs> on the uh, athletic. All right, Florida's a six seed. They're playing Colorado State, and the three seed is Houston. All right, and then I'm not done yet. On SB Nation, our friend Chris Daubertine, uh, Gator, Florida in his is a seven seed. And hold on. I'm going to mess it up again. It helps when I actually – ah, the two is Villanova. And the opponent is St. Louis. Mm. All right? Of those three, I don't do Jerry Palm because look at bracket matrix people. Um, so, uh, of those three potential first round opponents with knowing that the, the, the second game is either, um, Villanova or Houston, I will say that Belmont is a 14 in one of them playing Houston. And I love that matchup for the Bruins, but, um, who would you most want to see Florida play? Um, man, I, I don't. If, if uh, as someone who's a Florida fan, I don't think they want any piece of Houston. I, I really like Houston. Um, I think the way that they defend is is incredible, and it's crazy. Like they don't shoot the ball very well, but it just like doesn't seem to phase them offensively. Like uh, so, so for me, it's it's I, I'm going the route that goes through Villanova. I, I think that the way that Florida is just would be able to out athlete Villanova in multiple positions. Um, like I mean, I, I look at Colin Gillespie and and Jermaine Samuels and and um, Cole Swider, and I'm like, man, I, I like these are good players, but ones that I think that Florida. Uh, Florida can get through. So, so I, I, I look at that and uh, as, as much as I know that Villanova has the, the name brand recognition um, over Houston right now, I know that they've had the recent success. Um, I, I truly would like that matchup. Um, I would like that matchup with, with Villanova um, much more than uh, much more than I would with Houston. So um, I don't know if that's, that's crazy. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a, uh, that, that's how I feel. I like it. I like it. The, what I'll say of, of the first round games, what stinks is that that seven two where you get North Carolina because I think mm-hmm. like Florida has played a lot of teams similar to North Carolina in the SEC and you're gonna be like that's crazy North Carolina has so much talent North Carolina is like a terrible three point shooting team that just kills you on the offensive glass like Florida's been playing preparing for that game all season so like unless now the one thing I'll say because I know Eric will tap the brakes on my optimism there. 
the one thing I would say about that is Florida has also been killed by star players all year. And like, I could totally see Harrison Barnes being like, Oh yeah, I'm good. Well, <laughs> for like, for like one game. Well, I mean, the thing, the thing about, the thing about like North Carolina is like, it's not a normal North Carolina team. When you look at their talent, like it's not full of five stars. So as much as it's like people are, might think that that, concept of, of Florida being like prepared to play a, a North Carolina team or be favored against North Carolina. It's just like, this is not your normal North Carolina team. So just, you know, you'd have to get that kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're going to wear those awesome, you know, powder blue jerseys. But other than that, this is just, yeah, it's not your normal, uh, not your normal North Carolina team. So um, that matchup would be, would be, I, I, I'd like Florida now and that would be fun. But uh, Neil, I'm, I'll, I'll close it out with, uh, with this question that I realized I wrote with very poor grammar in my iPhone notes app, but uh, let me sound it out for you. Um, how did the Gorjot Gak and Dante Bassett situations affect your view on roster management? P.S. Thoughts on, quote, pushing players out. <laughs> a little bit of a run on there, but that's how I wrote it in my, uh, in my, in my notes. I like it. Look, I, so I have kind of two thoughts on this. I think Mike White has built a roster in the nick of time that is talented enough to withstand the loss of like an all American and still be pretty safely in the NCAA tournament. So if that's pushing players out, that's good. What I'm really, I would also say that, you know, that flipped two seasons for them to do the way that they felt comfortable doing it. And I respect that about them, that they said what we're doing wasn't necessarily working. And I thought that that there are a lot of staffs that wouldn't do that. Um, So I guess that's, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's part of my answer. The second piece of my answer um, is I don't know if Florida's necessarily done with that, given what could happen this off season and given Florida's recruiting strategy. And I really like the idea that the staff seems to be coming up with, which is like, let's focus on a relationship kid who grows and blossoms. We're going to land a big recruit in every class, like Resensef, right? Niles Lane was a consensus top 100 player until his senior year, and then he got – we've talked about it. Um, So it really would have been two top 100 guys. Lane fell from a four to a three. But Resensef, five-star player – Kwasi Reeves, we predicted on Florida Basketball Hour two years ago that he would become a five-star player. He did, yay us. Um, but I'm excited to see what they've they, they basically told you. Oh, very smart. Let's talk about the portal. Um, it's going to be interesting to see like how they assemble this team from grad transfers. And to kind of close that thought off before I kick it back to you, like, you know, for all the criticisms I have of Eric Musselman, what he's done with this Arkansas roster is kind of beautiful. No, it's true. I just, I mean, you, you got to look at the, uh, the Dante Bassett and Gorjak Yak situation and say like, man, Florida had them both for four years and got like 300 career minutes out of, out of both of them. So it's like, that's tough. And, and, and the one thing that I just push back on and, and, I've never been like on Twitter or on Gator country forums been like, Oh, Florida should push players out. But like people have always been like, Oh, like it's going to look so bad for recruiting. If, if, if they push, if, you know, if they push out Quez Glover to get a five star, whoever. And it's, it's just always interesting to me how people seem to be so scared at the notion of, of pushing players out. 
And I, I don't think it would hurt Florida in recruiting whatsoever. Like, I, I, I think that people are so scared at the, like, oh, some player's not going to come to Florida because he hears that they push players out. And you know what I would say if I was one of Florida's coaches recruiting a player? Um, hell yeah, we, we push players out. Because if I'm looking a player in the eye, I say, hey, you know, um, Neil Blackman, we think you're going to be a star here at Florida. Um, we are going to hold you to a high standard, and we're going to hold your teammates to a high standard. If, if your teammates – um, do not hold to that high standard. They won't have a place at Florida. You you will know as a star player that your teammates are going to be held to a high standard, or we're going to find some better players to play with you. Um, that's that's how I would talk if I was a coach um, talking to a star player about at Florida who who might say anything about being pushed out. I, I would say, yeah, yeah, we'll push out players. We'll push them out if they're not reaching the standard because we want the best players playing with you. And you you know what, star player. Um, if, if for whatever reason it's not working out at Florida, um, there's probably a better home for you anyway. So, so if you, if you want to take off, we'll, we'll find the best possible home for you. So, so again, like people, I, some people just, I, I feel like they think that if Florida were to push a player out that, um, or if they have pushed a player in the past, however you want to say it, like that it would hurt them in recruiting. And I, I don't think it would hurt them at all in recruiting at all. Um, maybe it's the way you frame it. That's that I think, but I just think like, Hey, if some star player that you're recruiting, some some high four star is like worried about getting pushed out, then man, he's probably not the guy you want in your program. And if you're going after a, a five star and, and he hears that you've pushed out players, I, I think you tell him, yeah, we push out players. Um, we're going to make sure you have the best possible players playing next to you. If they're not reaching the standard, we will push them out and we'll we'll get good players next to you. Maybe that wouldn't be exactly how I'd say it, but that's uh, that's just my response. And again, there was, there was times where Florida could have maybe had Dante Bassett or or Gorjak Gak moved out of the program um, so that they could get, uh, I'll say, a better player. Um, and they didn't, obviously. And, and ultimately, you had a four-year investment in each of these players that, that didn't net you much return. So that's one of the things that, like, maybe maybe I think that they should have they should have moved on from those guys earlier. Let me let me drop a little a little nugget on top of that really good take. Uh, that you just look, Billy Donovan was one of really kind of an innovator in that area. Um, in, 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 in his roster management was part and parcel. It's a little bit like Tony Bennett at Virginia. Like he just knows what kind of player he wants to recruit and that's what he goes and gets. And when he brings in a transfer, like he's going to figure out a way to make it work. Even if it doesn't necessarily feel like the greatest fit, like Mike Rosario, uh, I thought was like one that was a little odd for Billy. It's like, man, Mike doesn't really defend. And Billy was like, it's fine. Like, I'm going to make it. We'll scheme it up so that it's not that big a deal. And it turned out to not be. Like, he was, you know, the SEC sixth man of the year. Um, but but Billy, there were guys they ushered out, you know. And these some of them were highly touted dudes. Uh, Ray Shipman was a really highly touted kid that played AAU ball with Kenny Boynton. They, they ushered him out of the program. Uh, Jai Lucas. And, and that would be my nugget on Jai Lucas, a McDonald's All-American that, that they uh, pushed to the wayside. And, you know, Jai was down in Gainesville for the Kentucky game with Kentucky where he's an analyst. And, and uh, one thing that Jai Lucas said was, you know, I always respected Florida. Like they, they told me the truth. Billy Donovan said, hey, uh, we don't think that you're necessarily the best fit, but we're going to find a really good landing place for you. And we know that your future's in basketball. We know you want to be a coach like your dad. And um, they found a spot for him. 
right? And and that's kind of your job. Like you're not just running a program. You, when you recruit a kid, you're selling a kid that you're going to help them secure their future. That's all that is, um, you know. And so I'm with you. I think that's a really good take, and there's a history of it at Florida. Yeah, no, that's good, and uh, that's a good way good way to wrap up these these questions. I I just love this. Uh, I I love random questions. This is great. Yeah, we're going to do that segment again. We might even get to do it next time if we can get a show in before the Arkansas game uh, to, to preview it for everybody. But I don't know. Everybody was like, are you guys going to do a show? So thanks for all the DMs. We just dropped uh, about a 90-minute pod for you guys. So um, good night. Enjoy the basketball this weekend, and hopefully uh, Florida will be back on Tuesday, barring any mishaps with the Arkansas Razorbacks basketball program. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>